When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Laura Stark, Associate Professor at Vanderbilt University. I had the chance to talk with the writer and historian Alicia Puglionisi, whose book, In Whose Ruins, Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire, came out with the trade press Scribner in April 2022. The book is decidedly anti-capitalist and resoundingly anti-colonial. It's organized into four sections or sites that visit four evocative landscapes, a native burial mound in present day West Virginia, native oil wells at the tip of the Appalachian Mountains, petroglyphs along the Susquehanna River and the Sonoran Desert, rich with pottery, uranium and physicists, both white and native. At each of these sites, people with different political projects had generated multiple accounts of the landscapes and ideas evaluation. So within a context of shifting political power, white settler origin stories about each of these sites displaced empirical knowledge of native labor, skill, presence, and endurance with harmful fables of white origins and of native communities need for white so-called rescue. Into the present day, the effect has been to justify white theft of native land and deadly violence against tribal communities for the purposes of resource extraction. And in the end, even the false white origin stories became a resource to commodify. Puglianisi is a writer I really admire. She writes poetry, fiction, academic scholarship, including her 2020 book, Common Phantoms, and now In Whose Ruins, a mass market trade publication. She holds a PhD in history of medicine and as a lecturer in medicine, science, and humanities at the Johns Hopkins University. On the page, Puglianisi also has a really friendly, funny, quiet presence. She's sort of like a Where's Waldo that centers the relationships of the historical actors, including spirits, and also her own text-based relationships with other um, scholars, including important native scholars, Kim Talbert, Zoe Todd, Eve Tuck, and many others. So this conversation explores ways of living in good relation via writing, the status of truth, especially for historians, and the relevance of singer-songwriter Prince for everybody, but especially labor studies, and many other themes. We also discussed the important book by Chadwick Allen, Earthworks Rising, out in 2022 from Minnesota. And in an unrecorded snippet, we also swapped the names of our favorite local independent bookstores. And you can check out those stores and their names and links to them in the notes. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hello, this is Laura Stark, and I am talking with Alicia Puglinisi, and it is April of 2022, and we're talking about In Whose Ruins, which actually just came out a few weeks ago, so it's hot off the press um, with a major trade press as well. So Alicia, um, there's so many things I admire about this book and also about you as a writer. 
And uh, so I wanted to start off by asking you about your many genres you write in. So there's poetry, you have a novella, and your very recently published scholarly um, nonfiction book, Common Phantoms, as well as this mass market book. Um, that's a really fantastic in whose ruins um, that also came out. So I was just wondering, do you use these different genres as palette cleansers? So you're kind of moving from one to another, or are you always writing complementarily in different genres? Um, yeah, that's a great question. And also, thank you, Laura, for talking with me today. Um, yeah, I don't tend to think a lot about process, but it is the case that like I'm usually doing those things in parallel, but with a project like that, you know, with like a book project, like ultimately when it comes down to it, you're like spending like 14 hour days, like with your eyes glued to a computer, just like editing and revising. Um, and so I, yeah, after this, after everything was finished with this book, I did want to, like, I have gotten back to doing poetry and actually I really, <laughs> I really want to write a novel. That's my next thing. Um, but they're all kind of related and it's all kind of connected material. And like also like my sources for nonfiction history writing are also often literature. Um, like I'm, I read a lot of 19th century novels uh, and early 20th century. And so I think fiction and poetry are always in the mix for me whether it's something that I'm practicing or as like sources for understanding. That's so interesting to hear. And as we go along, if there are any uh, inspirations from poetry or fiction or anything like that, that, that come to mind um, that you want to tell me your listeners about, I'd actually really love to hear them. Um, and I wanted also to ask um, about the link between Common Phantoms, the book that you published, it was in 2020, it came out. Um, is that right, Alicia? It's yeah, a bunch of pandemic books. Yeah, that was right on, right on the start of the pandemic. Um, and then you have this one out two years later, which is a, it's a big book and it reads, it reads quickly. And I should also say, it's actually quite funny. You have a wonderful sense of humor without writing yourself into the story um, very directly. So I, I appreciated that as well. Um, about a, a, you know, you have a serious politics in the book as well, a very anti-capitalist, anti-colonial politics in this book on landscape. Um, and so, I take the book overall to be basically a history of histories. So it's about the ways in which people create stories specifically about landscapes um, and these dis distinctive land landscape formations that people have uh, tried to explain and understand that are in their midst in various ways and particularly looking at the late 19th century and early 20th century United States. So within sort of that landscape, there is, well, I was going to say inevitably, but it, of course, for myself speaking as a, a white settler scholar, I don't take it for granted that it would seem relevant and obvious that the history of native dispossession it should be central to that story. And it absolutely is, is central to your book In Whose Ruins. Um, so in thinking about this, this transition from Common Phantoms that came out in 2020 and this book In Whose Ruins in 2022, it seems like there is in both of them stories of absent presences. So Common, in Common Phantoms is about the psychical sciences in the 19th century. And this book is about sort of the histories that are told and not told in material <clears throat> material spaces. So I was wondering if you talk about the connection or if it's totally fabricated uh, between the two books. No, it's very literal. Um, <laughs> like there was a section, or I wrote a chapter for Common Phantoms that was expanding on uh, mediumistic encounters with indigenous earthworks. 
and looking at the history of Henry Rose Schoolcraft as sort of a, a white medium for um, the Ojibwe stories and traditions of his wife, Jane Johnson Schoolcraft and her relatives. And so I wrote that chapter and it didn't really fit with Common Phantoms, which is, yeah, like a history of, a prehistory of parapsychology kind of, um, and the mind sciences. Um, but, you know, in that, in Common Phantoms, it's very much concerned with mediumship and channeling and like, in some ways, like the authentication of communication, like how do we know who's really speaking, um, who's being spoken through, and who is like speaking for others out of turn. Uh, and like, of course, how, how do we understand like the permission of the dead? Like how do the dead assent or not um, to being kind of mobilized in different ways. And so I took that, uh, took that chapter out of Common Phantoms and was kind of thinking through, it, it just seemed like sort of a slightly different set of questions that was um, about human relationality, but also about relations to land and the memory that is sort of in land. And so, yeah, I, and also, you know, looking at this history of North American earthworks, uh, you know, as like sort of a very explicit uh, example of sort of manifest destiny colonialism, like the reinterpretation of earthworks as white, as having somehow a European origin contrary to all evidence. Um, that move sort of turned me to thinking about resources, land as a resource and other kinds of resources and our sort of spiritual narratives around them, um, around the discovery of hidden secrets, uh, like the retelling of the past in ways that are sort of suited to particular political ends. And so that was kind of <laughs> how I departed on this trajectory. Yeah, I can definitely, uh, it's a, it is a quite literal connection because it sounds like um, the first section of In Whose Ruins, which is about um, mounds and, and earthworks in Maryland, the US state of Maryland now, and the ways that they've been um, narrated and, and the origins looked for, that that actually was originally a piece of common phantoms. So it, I can see that it, it is literally taking out of one and, and putting into another. Um, so the, the book in whose ruins then is organized around four sites. And so I just want to, to start off by asking you about the structure of the book and the intentional decision that you made to call the sections sites and to think through the, the language and the idioms of landscape, because I, each of the sections, um, takes up a kind of earth formation. So the first one is about the mounds. The second one is about oil wells in Western uh, Pennsylvania. The third one is about the uh, rock drawings that were turned up in a damming of a river between Pennsylvania and Maryland, which is its, was its own dispute. And then turning to the landscape of the Southwest and the different um, resources under, under capitalism that were turned up in the Los Alamos area. So in thinking about these as sites, I could imagine another author might think of them as episodes or might think about them as object histories because they are um, each oriented around a particular type of thing in these in spaces. So could you talk about what you're getting at and what you're really trying to emphasize implicitly in this organization of the book into these four sections? I think that in considering, yeah, in considering them as sites, I was interested in not just the episode that is 
sort of most often demarcated as significant. Um, and it, these sort of like, again, very mythologized episodes uh, of like the Manhattan Project at Los Alamos or the discovery of oil in Western Pennsylvania and the oil boom. Um, but like considering the deep history of the places where these things happened and how that history was also a resource in the narratives that would then be constructed um, around oil or around you know, nuclear power. Um, and so considering like the site uh, and like trying to understand the forces that were at play there before the event that locked that place into like the progress of capitalism uh, kind of was, uh, yeah, I think just part of providing a fuller history of those events. Um, and they're sort of very like canonical events. And so it's like, even talking about the history of the Manhattan Project is like, I'm not qualified to do that. <laughs> you know, I'm not a historian of Cold War physics. Um, but like, there's so much there in terms of what the people in that place were drawing upon to tell their story um, and to feel at home uh, and to identify as people of that place that I think that's where the idea of a site becomes apparent that like they seem to be really engaging in very place-based thinking and narrative um, about themselves. Yeah, that language that you've just used, sort of feeling at home in a place, um, that really comes through as, as that was the effort of what at least uh, white settler scientists and um, capitalists were, were doing in these different sites, as opposed to the other uh, many ways, often indigenous ways, that the places were narrated as well. And th so throughout the book, one of the recurring stories that's told um, is that the reason why these remarkable landscape features are where they are and why they look the way they are, because they're truly tremendous and either beautiful and or amazing feats of engineering, is that they were built, created, discovered by the lost white tribe. And so this comes through all of the stories. Like there is some um, thread of this narrative in which ex explanations that could be based in native and indigenous history and would also require acknowledging the dis that dispossession actually um, by white settler scientists or simply um, you know, land surveyors or other sorts of capitalists um, that the origins were actually with white people. So could you just talk, like, tell listeners that that story of, that's recurring of the lost white tribe? Yeah, um, it's definitely a recurring theme. And it's one of those things that's so ubiquitous in 19th and 20th century, like, sort of U.S. popular culture and, like, antiquarian thought that like it's not shocking that it shows up <laughs> in all of these places but it is like something to really think about you know it's like a real uh the persistence of that desire is telling us something um and to me it really does represent a desire to like parse the landscape in such a way as to like justify colonization and um, again, like provide this sense of belonging for people who, uh, you know, at the time, you know, in the early 19th century, who are participating in indigenous dispossession and have seen what that actually looks like and are reading the newspaper headlines every day. Um, and so like in that context where like, you can read a newspaper headline about, you know, wars against the Dakota and also read a newspaper story about like evidence of the lost white race discovered in a mound. Like 
that is clearly trying to resolve a contradiction for people. Yeah, and so thinking about that in terms of the first section on the the mounds, I wonder if you could give us a, a visual. Is there a way you could sort of describe what these mounds look like so we can chat them about them a bit? Yeah, um, well, I definitely, I guess this book will also be probably featured on the New Books Network soon, but um, Chadwick Allen has a new book out called Earthwork, Earthworks Rising. Um, and so his work was really important in, uh, like, ex- in so, so like I'm sort of doing a history of you know settler perspectives on these sites and the like you know political analysis of that. Um, and Alan is looking at like, like what these sites mean for indigenous communities and continue to mean. Um, and so. I think that element was really important for me um, in like maintain in like just situating what I'm doing appropriately. Um, and so these are, you know, throughout the Mississippi and Ohio river valleys, um, there are from, you know, dating from different periods, um, these sort of monumental earthworks. Some of them are burial mounds that are like conical. Uh, the Grave Creek Mound in present day West Virginia is I think like 63 feet tall. So they're like, they're very, and the Cahokia, which is a ceremonial mound um, is even larger. Um, and so they have all of these different functions uh, again, you know, burial ceremonies, um, public gatherings, and then there are effigy mounds that are shaped like animals figures. Um, And so for people who were traveling west down the Ohio River in the early part of the 19th century, these were kind of like big tourist spots um, because there was this uh, like feeling people often bemoaned that North America had no castles, it had no cathedrals, it had none of these evidences of great civilization um, that these European settlers were familiar with in their history books. Um, And so they looked at the mounds um, and wanted to understand them in that context of civilization um, and civilizational narratives that they were familiar with. Um, which include these narratives of kind of like conquest and collapse. And so they came to read them as uh, they assumed that anything attaining the status of like a monument couldn't have been built by indigenous people um, because of their race science and their attitudes. Um, And so then they sort of attribute this to another race uh, predating Indians and uh, come up with stories about who those people were and attribute to them all of the sort of virtues of civilization and then depict themselves, Europeans, as continuing uh, or reclaiming even um, the legacy of the people who built those monuments. Yeah, so the, the book, especially in that section, but throughout the book, you're looking at efforts to pin down um, the and, and origin, the origin, and really locating that effort as um, a capitalist effort to basically kind of atomize and bound something like an event um, and to have, the, have it be single have it be just one one source and one story. And so one of the things that this really um, made me wonder is about um, your relationship with historical truth, because the book certainly does not want to create an, a new origin story, but instead show how, um, to give a history of how origin stories are created. But then it, it makes and we wonder how you are able to um, make claims about what is true and not true historically, because this is a question I struggle with myself. 
it's definitely a difficult question. And for me, it's, I guess, all about sources. It's, it's about the sort of relationality of historical work that you're engaging with other people's work and kind of like from within that, like looking at your subject matter and trying to understand what the connections are and like how you want to sort of interpret events with whatever wisdom is available in the work of other scholars that they're offering. Like, I think I, there, there are a lot of sources in the book that are kind of like unreliable <laughs> that I don't necessarily trust, like primary sources. Um, and it does kind of become a matter of like, what are your what are the values with which you're approaching the larger narrative? Um, and how does that shape your interpretation of sources? And I know that this is sort of <laughs> maybe anathema to the way some people work with sources, but um, yeah, I think for me that that is really important. Like how I'm making sense of this world is related to my understanding of its politics and uh, what kind of, I think is a faithful way of representing that. Um, but it's, it's definitely difficult. <laughs> I appreciated even so far in our conversation, the way in which you're um, showing your relationships with other texts, for example, in you're letting listeners know about Earthwork Rising, um, for example, and the politics of citation of In Whose Ruins, I also really appreciated because there are moments in which you very easily could have um, explained or referred to one set of scholars and in, um, instead you, or in particular, you then highlight um, a native or indigenous scholar who's working in a, in a similar vein. So I, I just really appreciated that about the book. And there's a, a sentence actually in the first section of In Whose Ruins, I feel like that is a comment on one of your historical actors or it's a description of, of what one of your historical actors has done. But I, I feel like it's also a statement about the politics of the book that you've just described. Um, and so you're, you're talking about Schoolcraft, one of the main uh, characters in the first section on the Earth Mounds. And you write um, that, you know, after he had uh, produced a text in which he got totally hornswoggled, like he wrote something and he, it turned out to be completely wrong. And you write, in the habit of molding his evidence to please white readers, rather than communicating the reality of his indigenous relations, Henry Schoolcraft set himself up to be swindled by a small town hoax. And I feel like that statement about um, living in good relation, writing in good relation is, was especially apt. So in continuing to think about um, the mounds and schoolcraft kind of emerging out of your first project, um, Common Phantoms, I wonder if you could tell us about the relationship between Jane, the anglicized name of his um, first wife, um, but the relationship between Jane and schoolcraft and what why that relationship was really evocative for you? It's a very, it's been a very compelling relationship, I think, for a lot of historians and poets. Um, and so actually, this is a point where I engaged with Jane Johnson Schoolcraft's work, uh, because I was interested in her as a poet. Um, and that sort of strand crossed with her husband's work as an ethnologist. Um, and then sort of, you know, subsequent Native American poets have also kind of looked to her as sort of a precursor uh, and been very interested in her life story. Um, and for, for me, again, like coming at this from sort of a history of archaeology and anthropology perspective, uh, 
you know, what Henry is doing in kind of trying to give voice to, uh, trying to channel uh, indigenous stories is, I find sort of the Grave Creek Stone, this uh, archeological hoax that was uncovered in the Grave Creek Mound, planted there by a resident of the town. Um, but then uh, sort of trumpeted as evidence of the lost wh white race um, as having been created by ancient like Celts or Phoenicians or anyone. Um, so this fraudulent artifact is something that Henry Schoolcraft uh, brandishing his non-existent philological skills <laughs> um, is trying to give a voice to and claim and sort of build this narrative of American history uh, and justification around. Um, and looking at his earlier history as an Indian agent uh, in the Michigan territory, like you see him doing something very similar with his wife, Jane and her family and the stories that they collected, which, you know, really they did this in the context of like a lot of collective labor. Um, Jane wrote a lot of the stories, translated a lot of the stories. Her brothers are involved. Um, one of her brothers later is angry at Henry um, for publishing this material and demands, uh, demands a piece of the royalties. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I think that question of like, who's speaking for whom is illuminated in that crossing of like the Grave Creek Stone, this fake thing, <laughs> and Henry's uh, attempts to sell Ojibwe stories, um, which were a real thing and are a real thing, um, but the way that he produced it for as a as a resource and as something to be consumed by white readers is very much inflected with his politics uh, and his service to uh, the United States. Do another, um, so that was a story um, that's showing us something about um, relationality in which uh, a, a rock sort of featured as uh, the hoax. And in section three, we are actually looking at sort of a different a different rock altogether, but it's really the, the object that gets moved around and has its, um, its context um, in which it originally turned up for, for white settlers um, in the process of creating a dam. And so um, I, so I, I love the first, I'm sorry, the third section, I love all the sections, but the third section and especially the first sentence because it is simply, what were they thinking? <laughs> um, and so this section is looking at petroglyphs and specifically the river in which um, petroglyphs were situated once, once it was dammed. So um, tell us a bit, if you could uh, imagine into the minds of, of the people um, and what your question here is about, what were they thinking? What happened and what were they thinking? Yeah, it's funny because I hadn't actually thought about that question. <laughs> I hadn't thought about answering that question. But I think in a way the answer is uh, really obvious and is that they weren't thinking anything because this was just business. You know, this was just the business that lay before them. And I think Henry Schoolcraft is a similar situation where uh, from our vantage point, we we would ask, what was he thinking? Uh in so they so just just to clarify they detonated so um uh these entrepreneurs these uh capitalists detonated just tons of explosives in a site that they specifically knew had these really uh interesting and important petroglyphs in them yeah so this is a this is on the Susquehanna River in Maryland just below the Pennsylvania line um, and it's the uh, Academy, the Baltimore Academy of Sciences that has gone on this mission to, in their mind, preserve these indigenous petroglyphs 
um, which are going to be submerged with the construction of the Conowingo Dam, which was completed, I think, in 1926. And the petroglyphs were removed, I think, the year before. Um, and so, yeah, they're kind of like dynamiting chunks of these huge uh, boulders in the river um, and collecting the pieces. And then uh, they sort of cement them back together and mount them in front of the Science Academy headquarters. Um, and that, yeah, that kind of is another one of these emblematic moments of like erasing, claiming, uh, and then giving a new story for these artifacts. And I think it's important that the instigation for this, you know, uh, they wouldn't have done this if it were not for the construction of the dam. And in their minds, uh, and I think, you know, <laughs> an important thing for all historical preservationists to consider is like, what does it mean to preserve and where does that come into contact with destroying? <laughs> um, but so they're they're rescuing in their minds these petroglyphs for science to be used for scientific purposes to advance knowledge of whoever made these petroglyphs, which might have actually been Europeans, according to some. So in this section as well, we have the return of the story of the lost white tribe to explain where where these could have possibly come from. And as you you point out, it also like calls into question or raises the issue of who is the public in thinking about public resources and what is being done in the name of a public who is in included in that. Um, and for these in particular, in this section in particular, you actually show up for the first time. We're almost on page 300 here and you use the word I for the very first time in talking about driving across the dam. And there's a story of you actually um, experiencing the rocks and the petroglyphs for the, for the first time. And so I wonder if, if you could actually just describe what they look like and also how possibly this could have been attributed to this lost white tribe. Uh, that's interesting. I didn't know that about the book. <laughs> um, I think that, well, there's also something to be said about like writing for a trade press, which is that I think it, it was sometimes unclear to me, like I, I think a lot of these books are written as kind of like travel logs and there are a lot of like going to a place, here's an interesting historical thing, here's like the myth and here's the reality. And the author is sometimes more present for that sort of thing. Um, and I didn't choose to go in that direction, but I did visit some of these places. And um, so, yeah, I frequently travel across the Conowingo Dam. Uh, from Baltimore to Philly. Um, and I went to visit the petroglyphs in their current, uh, well, some of them are in the Maryland State Archaeology like warehouse. And some of them, uh, thanks to the efforts of the Chesapeake Conservatory of the Onondaga Nation, um, and Sid Jameson in particular, who helped to advocate for this, uh, some of them have been relocated to the banks of the Susquehanna River right under the dam. Um, and so they're kind of in this old mill house that's very like dusty and full of bits of grain floating around. Um, and they're kind of mounted in traditional like historical display style. You know, there's informational text, there's like photographs. Um, and so it's a very humble little exhibit. And I think it would be really interesting to see something more ambitious done in terms of uh, resituating more of those petroglyphs near their original site. It's such a great point about um, the comparing the different locations of the petroglyphs. So some of them were recited to the museum context, and some of them, I mean, after they were um, uh, located in just a pile in a park without any 
acknowledgement or understanding what these what these were. They're relocated to a, a museum situation, but some of them in reciting them were put back at the river. And so it's just such a really um, sort of evocative. And I feel like um, there's a there's a statement about politics in there in the choice of, of what is the site to be done in the 21st century, the, the right site for them in the 21st century. And you have a, a sentence that I just found especially beautiful in this section, section three, which is when you're introducing the petroglyphs, you write, for a century, these petroglyphs would struggle to express meaning without their context. They told an indigenous history of the land which to white scientists appeared a mystery. So it's a, again, the idea of, uh, of a relationship and a, a relationship between sort of the rocks, the petroglyphs and the place in which they're supposed to be um, located according to the objects themselves. So it's really, really interesting. Um, regarding you writing about yourself um, in the in the first person for the for the first time um, around there, which I, I I see now it was actually just a bit into the two hundreds of the book, um, but I took note of it because it's also something that I um, have a lot of questions about, and I note when I'm reading various authors because I think that there there are different approaches to it. I should say that you use a lot of um, free direct discourse, which I really really like. So. Um, the idea that you are speaking directly to me, even though you're not using the word I, it, that is certainly the, the voice and of the book. And I do have the sense that it's common, um, it's, a, it's a common approach to indicate one's relationship with a text by speaking in the first person and telling one's own stories. But I feel like often that has the effect of centering the person who's telling the story as opposed to the relationships that, that they're wanting to center. So I really liked how you did this. Um, and I could imagine that it wouldn't be an obvious choice for somebody, for an editor, for example, who was encouraging you to write in a way that would be something like a, a travel narrative kind of genre. So I'll just say um, I did really appreciate it and like it quite a bit. That's really good to hear. Yeah, I, my editor was actually very helpful in that regard. And I was I was prepared <laughs> to be asked to do something more travelogy because it's a trade publication. And I was happy <laughs> to not <laughs> to do that. Um, and the editor was very supportive, like encouraged it. And so I, yeah, I think that was a good experience. Um, and yeah, I think that aspect of the petroglyphs um, being sort of mysterious and that dislocation creating a sense of mystery is another really important, was another sort of spur to me across all of the areas that are covered in the book, like and I, I teach a class on mystery, <laughs> on mystery fiction. And so I, I think about this all the time, but like, how is something, you know, it's, it's that uh, the pivot from mystery to mystification, like how does this, how do the origins of this thing become concealed? This is not accidental, you know, someone does this for a reason. Um, and it's often then presented to the public as something that's just entertaining. It's just a mystery. Um, and so I think that that's an aspect of like, again, of sort of lost race theories um, that I find very important to, to analyze um, and think critically about. Um, and so, yeah, the this idea that like these petroglyphs don't make any sense uh, and need to be deciphered uh, is kind of a product of their dislocation. Um, and the way that they circulate is an interesting aspect of the story that I, again, kind of crosses the uh, circulation of power on the electric grid. And so the construction of the dam as a way of turning the river into a resource that then flows um, and is, is liquid. Uh, sort of crosses this attempt to do that with the petroglyphs that doesn't work that well because they're very heavy. 
Yeah, and the the subtitle of the book um, is Power, Possession, and the Landscapes of American Empire. And I had assumed that power meant political power when I first started reading the book, but actually it's quite clear throughout through um, each of the sections because you've got oil wells, you've got um, this hydro hydropower dam, you've got Los Alamos um, and nuclear energy that it's also, you know, electrical power it's other it's other forms of power um beyond that as well that are that are not the uh political power that i had originally thought that the power uh, referred to so um it's i guess it's a both and story and your your comment about um mystery and i love that you teach a course on mystery do you say it's mystery fiction what is it what was the course yeah, I call it medical mysteries. It's like detective fiction and the, the idea of medical mystery. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, the idea of closing off a mystery as something that doesn't need to be acknowledged as having some sort of labor or intention behind it also reminds me of um, issues around the language of uh, magic and even enchantment. Like sometimes magic can be a way to close something down um, as opposed to acknowledging and recognizing the labor behind it. And it was actually an interview with the artist formerly uh, known as Prince and formerly alive, now deceased, in which he actually got really, um, they got really upset when people would say that their music was like magic. And he was like, no, it's actually like a lot of work. And this is how I do it. Um, so the idea of magic often operating uh, for that function um, is really resonant in thinking about your comment um, regarding mysteries. Wow, I love that. I love that he would say that. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. I do too. Um, so in, in moving from the petroglyphs and thinking about a, a really violent action, the big explosion, that was intended to uh, be an effort at, at preservation um, among the, the white community. We then move in section four to Los Alamos in US New Mexico. And I wonder if you could talk about what got you there. So the, the previous three sections are um, in basically the, the US mid-Atlantic kind of region. So West Virginia, Pennsylvania, Maryland area. And then we have Los Alamos. So what brought you there? There's kind of a future oriented, there's a future element and a past element. Like I was thinking about sources of power that have, well, thinking about nuclear fuel as something that is somewhat unique at the time was unique in its implications for futurity, uh, that this source of power was uh, essential, was promoted as absolutely essential to securing US hegemony, but also threatened the global future in a way that people had never seen before, um, completely apocalyptic destruction. Uh, and so I think that the, the need, the imperative to seize this resource and fulfill what people you know, uh, spoke of as kind of its destiny, again, in this kind of uh, teleological thinking about resources that it was clearly put there <laughs> for, to fulfill this purpose, um, yet also in doing so, we threaten even the possibility of a future that uh, kind of intrigued me as the kind of resource that I would want to conclude the book with. And of course, it's very resonant now with issues of climate change. And in looking back on anti-nuclear activism, it just sounded very familiar and fresh uh, and like exactly the kind of conversations that we're having today. So that's sort of the future element of it. Like I wanted something that would turn from the past and look at the future implications of resources. But at the same time, uh, and if, like inevitably intertwined with that is the way that people then and there were 
looking to the past as a justification and a source of meaning for their work. And so there's actually a line, there's a scene in this Willa Cather novel, Song of the Lark, where the protagonist is uh, resting, uh, is taking the rest cure in, at like a ranch in New Mexico and is walking through uh, a Pueblo, Pueblo and ancestral site that has all of these, that has you know, broken pottery all over and has this uh, sort of ecstatic communion with the past. And Cather describes her as sort of connecting with this vital flow of creative power from the indigenous people who were there. And then she's an opera singer. And so then she like, this transforms her voice and she becomes this unique American voice on the stage. And that really just like captured everything about that move, which, you know, artists and writers were looking to the Southwest at that time as a source of creative vitality. And it becomes a tourist destination and people are collecting um, pottery and rugs and all of these uh, indigenous craft objects. And the people who were who come to Los Alamos are engaged in that same economy. It's so fascinating to read um, and thinking about the different genres that you're pulling from, in addition to this really tremendous story um, within a story of, of uh, Willa Cather. And it's a song of the lark. Am I getting the name? The name of it, right? Yeah, this the section section four on the on Los Alamos and nuclear fuel was probably the first time I've ever seen the cartoon Crazy Cat and Thomas Kuhn brought together in one place. So I really just need to ask you about um, your passion for Crazy Cat and what you feel like Crazy Cat can tell us. I think uh, it's just a really great comic <laughs> and everyone should read it. Uh, and when I, like, I was revisiting it, not related to this project, but I, I started noting, like, I always knew that it was in a desert, um, but I started looking at the pottery that's in all of the strips and in the, like, landscape formations and I was like, oh, I need to look into this um, because George Harriman, yeah, was basing it on New Mexico on his extended visits to New Mexico. Um, and I wanted to frame the section through the like lens of Harriman and Crazy Cat in part because like a lot of the book is concerned with appropriation and these uh, and violence and this sort of the way that even art <laughs> and you know spirituality have can become wrapped up uh, in these uh, in these processes of domination um, and consumption. And so I felt like Harriman's way of engaging with the landscapes of the Southwest, represented something more hopeful, not something perfect, but something that like, you know, he had that same desire. He saw, he found that same spiritual sustenance in that place, uh, but he's doing something with it that isn't just recapitulating uh, this sense of ownership and, it, you know, sort of manifest destiny uh, and isn't quite making it into a resource. It's more of, uh, you know, it's more of a dreamed space and it's kind of a way of like redreaming <laughs> what these, what might be possible uh, in these spaces. Yeah, I really love that reading and use of art that itself is imperfect and uh has little inflections of potential appropriation and also vi violence in Crazy Cat. 
Um, but the way that you're reading it, or in addition, the way that you're reading it as having and accomplishing a sort of non-extractive practice and having an, a non-extractive um, value as well, or a value outside of capitalism, um, or not determined strictly by it. Each of the sections and the book overall is like the stories of the lost white tribe as um, a, a way of kind of understanding in this um, very dominant, uh, white dominant sort of fashion, um, where origin, what the origins of a place or an object are. Another through line is as you, you're suggesting the idea of manifest destiny and that white settlers are the rightful owners and possessors and users of land and, and land formations. And, and so it seems like what you're trying to get at in thinking about manifest destiny through each of the four sections and, and its problems and its, uh, its, its future, the future of this idea is the idea of um, inevitable growth and progress, which is both a political and an economic statement. And along with that, the fear, the constant fear of decline and collapse as well. And so that's why the idea of something um, being sort of quote unquote discovered or having like an additional, an additional seeming event of discovery that suggests that something came before is very unsettling for folks who are thinking through and really admiring a story of manifest destiny of onward marches and greater growth and greater progress, because it means um, that they also might have some vulnerabilities there. Um, and so I really admire and like the sort of future turning and encouraging readers to redream, um, redream the present and, uh, or, and dream the future together. And so as we start to wrap up, I just wanted to ask you whether this, this work and this project has changed your own everyday practices around capitalism or have you kind of admired seeing the little anti-capitalist practices that other people have done? So do you feel like the, this book or the project has changed you in any way and your practices? It was definitely an education for me in Indigenous history, which I was never taught. Uh, and I feel a lot of insecurities about my ability to engage with that literature. But, it, you know, I felt like it was very important to put in as much as possible and again like cite as much as possible um and so that was kind of the part of my education that was most lacking uh and but something that I was always aware it, it, you know what made me seek out that literature was moving through landscapes and knowing <laughs> like knowing that there was something wrong yeah you know, it's like we know how this came to be uh but not exactly <laughs> and like it needs you know it needs to be treated in much greater detail uh and so I think that like resolved like and any like it did well it didn't resolve but like it helped me understand uh like why I was having that experience uh, every, you know, whenever traveling <laughs> anywhere in this place. And in terms of like my relationship to capitalism, I, it, this I think is a expression of just where like, I've been a socialist since I can remember. And it has always been an important part of my life. And having to like try to sell a book is very, is even very like weird and difficult um, for me, but I do need to pay my bills. Um, but yeah, I think that it is a, it is the most direct expression of like kind of my values that I've been able to incorporate into my work. I really appreciate it. Um, I know that others will too. 
So just to wrap up, I do want to um, just read some of the, the final sentences of the book um, because the writing is really beautiful. Um, it's funny and it's descriptive and it also um, treats in a, a way that, I, that can feel comfortable getting close to events and um, people and relationships that are also really violent and extractive as well. But you write at the very end of the book that myths of extinction push outside their frame the even more disturbing possibility that the mutations of the country could turn people's minds to justice and that they could seek it with each other. So many of our stories dance around the horror of a treasure that's cursed and fear of letting it go. The point is to see that not as ruin, but as life itself. So thanks so much, Alicia. Thank you so much for this conversation.